to continue our, our series on uh, the household of God, what the, the church is called to do and be. And uh, this morning we are going to look at uh, the foundation of the church, which is scripture. And uh, several years ago, my wife and I were able to, to take a trip to uh, Yosemite, and we, we went snowshoeing. And uh, when we arrived uh, at a, a large meadow uh, that was kind of encompassed by uh, trees on the perimeter, uh, I, I noticed that there uh, was an echo uh, when I spoke. So like any uh, grown child, uh, I began to, to make noises and, and uh, shouting and hooting and hollering uh, to have fun with that echo, right? I mean, if, if you're in this peaceful meadow and you can say something like, woohoo, uh, and then it, it, it echoes across and, and back and forth, you, you have to do that. And so now we are all probably familiar with the experience of an echo, uh, which is technically sound bouncing or reflecting uh, as it bounces off another object and then arriving back at uh, the listener after uh, the original sound has, has died down. Well, when uh, a sound is reflected off of multiple objects and, and there are multiple reflections of a particular sound uh, bouncing around, you get what is known as reverberation. Uh, and this effect is, is common in, in performance halls that are designed uh, with uh, sound reflective surfaces or, or when uh, sound systems are, are utilized. Uh, you may have, uh, be familiar with that if you, you want to hear a little bit of what reverberation sounds like. there, that's what the church should be like. Say, so what do you mean? Well, uh, each and every Sunday, uh, the Word of God is proclaimed, right? Uh, and then once the Word of God is proclaimed, it should be bouncing off of each and every one of our lives throughout the week. Uh, and it should be reflected uh, off of each of us onto others. And we should have this reverberation of God's word existing in our church so that the, the, the word is, is spoken into each other's lives, that the word is uh, applied and, and carried out. And we should have this constant reverberation of God's word across our church. That is the goal for the Word of God to be reverberating throughout our congregation each and every day, not just on Sunday mornings. I love what uh, Timothy Lane uh, says, and he's actually the, the, the author of the, the book that we're covering in uh, Equipping Hour right now. He says this, says, The ministry of the Word doesn't stop with the preaching. It continues throughout the church, the discipling ministry, the children's ministry, the youth ministry, the missions work, the worship ministry, the friendships and, and families. All of this operates on the same page by being word-oriented and Christ-centered. Elders and deacons are, are taking the word into their work. Parents are learning to bring the gospel into how they train their kids. Husbands and wives are thinking about the centrality of the gospel as they relate to one another. And the list goes on and on. And, and that is what the church should be like. 
Uh, and, and that sounds great as we draw up that, that play on the chalkboard, right? Like, okay, here's what we should do. Uh, but, but it's much more difficult when, when we actually get into a real-life situation and try and, and carry that out, right? And so how, how does that work? How do we actually get the word to reverberate uh, across all of us uh, in our church so that the, the, the word it sounds forth in us and through us and then goes outward into our neighborhoods, into our community, and into the greater part of the Treasure Valley? Well, I would say that it begins by us changing our understanding of God's Word, or reminding ourselves of the power of God's Word, if we can put it that way. And we must allow Scripture to teach us how to view Scripture. See, God has instructed us how to view the Bible and what role it is supposed to play in the life of the church and in the life of individual believers. And in fact, the Bible has given us numerous illustrations, numerous pictures of how this is to work and how uh, the, the Word of God is to function in our lives. And I have a lofty ambition this morning. Uh, this morning, I, I want to look at eight different illustrations of God's Word that will help us better understand how we should respond to and use the Bible in our own lives. Okay, so we have these, these eight illustrations— and illustration number one is that God's Word is the lamp that we see with. If you turn with me to Psalm 119, and we'll look at verse 105. Psalm 119, verse 105. It's a short verse, but it says this, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And that, that is what we must believe, that the Word of God is the light that enables us to see in a sin-darkened world. And without God's world, or without God's Word, we, we are in a world of darkness, and we are prone to, to stumbling and tripping over anything and everything in our path, wondering where to go in life, wondering why we are here and what we are supposed to do. But God's Word is the light that removes the darkness. From that same psalm, if you look at verse 130, it says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And that's the, that's the goal of preaching. That's the goal of Bible study, that as we come to God's Word, that as we begin to, to know it and to believe it, that the, the unfolding of God's Word would give light to our eyes, to our hearts, that we would begin to see and understand the world around us as it truly is. Proverbs 6, verse 23 says, the, For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and the reproves of discipline are the way of life. And l last weekend we were at, uh, up at camp, and uh, as we like to do, uh, we, uh, as once the, the kids go to bed, the, the parents uh, rejoicing in, in time without the, the children being awake, uh, we, we love to stay up late and play games. Uh, so we're playing games there uh, in, in the middle of all of the cabins, and it was around midnight, and we began to hear a group of uh, coyotes nearby. Uh, and that was uh, initially concerning, and they, they got closer and closer. Uh, and so we decided to, to kind of call it a night and pack, pack up the games, and we were going to walk uh, in groups of two or more to where we needed to go, kind of scattered across uh, the camp. And uh, it was while I was grabbing my stuff to get ready to go to the, to the bathhouse that I realized that uh, I didn't have my flashlight. 
that my flashlight was uh, safely tucked into the glove compartment of our van uh, because it was one of those things that you you forgot to pack and it was like the last thing on your way out. Like, oh, I forgot the flashlight. Let me grab it. And we just left it in the car. So, uh, so I uh, and my wife... Uh, got to kind of walk through uh, the darkness. And that's not the best of feelings uh, when there's uh, coyotes uh, out and about. And they, they were off in the distance, but that reality of, hey, the, I'm, I'm having to walk in the dark and I can't see very well. And are my eyes deceiving me? What's that over there? Is it a shadow? All of these things. And, uh, but that's, that's how so many of us walk through life. We, we, we have God's word, but it's not necessarily there with us. It, it's somewhere else. We know that it's a light. Like, oh, I, but, but then when we need it most, we haven't necessarily hid it in our hearts. And we don't have it with us when uh, in that time of extreme need. But when we have God's word, we are able to see. And without God's word, we are forced to walk in darkness. And, and the brighter the word shines in our lives, the better we see. Uh, and the more powerful of a witness we have to the world around us. Because others begin to see the light of Christ shining in us. And they say, well, hey, what is that? How, how is it that you're able to, to see and navigate the trials and circumstances of life differently than I am? Again, if the word of God is going to reverberate in our church, it first begins with this belief, with this understanding that God's word is the lamp that we see with. And then we must know God's word. It's not enough merely to believe that God's word is the light and then to keep his word closed. Say, yeah, that's light, but I just, I cover it up. I, I don't use that light. We must know the word for his light to shine in our lives, and we must uh, bring it to bear upon our lives. Uh, and as the word of God shines in our life and enables us to see, it will also reveal areas uh, in our life that needs to change. Right, and again, that, that's where the rubber meets the road. Of here, Here's God's word, here's the truth that it that it shows me, and even as we, we studied uh, John's gospel, we talked about there's two responses to the light. Uh, we can be moths or we can be cockroaches, right? What do moths do when they see the light? They are drawn to it. What do cockroaches do when the lights come on? Uh, they, they skitter and scatter from it, uh, running away. And how are we going to respond to God's word? And what is it going to reveal in our lives? So first and foremost, it is the lamp that we see with. But then secondly, God's word is the teaching that we submit to. Uh, I want you to turn over with me to, to Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, verses that you're familiar with uh, concerning the Great Commission. But there's, there's things there that we often just speed right past. Matthew 28 Verses 19 and 20 say this. We can back up to verse 18, get a running start. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
See, what we oftentimes bypass in those verses is that the Great Commission is a call for us to proclaim all that Jesus has commanded and that we are called to obey all that he has commanded. That we are to teach everything that he has said and to obey everything that he has said. His word is the teaching we submit to. Uh, and in fact, this is, this is the very heart of what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower of Christ, to obey all that he has commanded. And this, this confronts our, our normal sinful tendency to kind of treat the Bible as a buffet line. Now, we come to it and, and we pick and choose uh, what we want to partake of depending upon our appetite uh, and our tastes of that point in time. Oh, I have a little bit of this. Oh, you know what? That one kind of hurts right now. I won't obey that. I'll, I'll do this over here. Uh, but, but we can't treat the Word of God as a buffet line. We, we have to, to eat the whole meal. Uh, we have to obey everything that it says. And obeying only some of what Christ has commanded reveals that we may not be one of his disciples. I love what Jesus says in, in Luke six forty six, in, in speaking with a, a group of people. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then not do what I tell you? Uh, th there's a discrepancy there. And Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, some people imagine that if they read some many chapters of the Bible every day, it will be much to their profit. But it is not so. If the reading is a mere mechanical exercise, it will be far better to read a tenth as much and weigh it and let it take possession of brain and heart. Indeed, we have to understand that our love for Christ is demonstrated by our obedience to him. That his teaching is what we are called to submit to. John fourteen twenty one says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I love what our own EFCA statement of faith says regarding the Word of God, regarding the Bible. It says, Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. But is that true for us as individuals and as a church? Do we, do we obey do we believe all that it teaches? Do we obey all that it requires? And do we trust everything that Scripture promises? If the Word of God is going to reverberate among us, if it's going to be re reflected and bounce around in our congregation, we, we have to come to grips with those three things. Do we believe? Do we obey? And then are we going to trust all of the promises of Scripture? And if those things are, are going to be true in the lives of us individually and as a church, then it could also be said that that scripture is, in essence, the philosophy that we live by, you know, which is the, the third illustration that I, that I want to, to point to, and that's pulled from Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. If you turn over there with me, it says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit 
according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. See, Paul is warning the Colossians not to be led astray by any other way of thinking, by any other ideology or, or, or any other worldview, which is uh, that, that comprehensive way that we look at uh, life and, and the world around us. Uh, and you could call this an ideology, you can call this a philosophy, you can call this a, a, a worldview, but, but Paul separates every single worldview into two broad categories here. Those that are uh, according to human wisdom and tradition. Uh, and there are, there are many. There, there is almost an, an infinite number of worldviews and philosophies that are, according, that are according to human wisdom and tradition. But then there's a second category, and it has a single philosophy in it. And that singular philosophy is a worldview that is according to Christ and his word, that, it, that is built upon the truth of Scripture. And, and Paul is encouraging the Colossians to, to build their philosophy of life upon that which is according to Christ. And they are to reject anything and everything that is not according to Christ. That's what Paul is is challenging them too here in this verse. And the Word of God is supposed to inform our entire understanding of the world around us. And there are, there are no shortage, there is no shortage of competing ideologies uh, that we are constantly bombarded with uh, if we are going out into the world. Uh, we are constantly told what to believe and, and how to make sense of, of life. And one example of this is back in 2018, there was a, a Canadian psychologist named Jordan Peterson who wrote a, a best-selling book called 12 Rules for Life, uh, An Antidote to Chaos. Uh, and this immediately became a, a bestseller. You can just tell from the from the title, this is a, this is a philosophy. He's saying, hey, th these are rules to live by. These are the, the governing principles that should uh, show us how to live life. And while his principles have, have some wisdom, they're, they're ultimately imperfect because he, he takes biblical ideas, but he severs them from the God of all truth. So here, here are these ideas, which again, some of them are, are good in so much as they reflect what the Bible teaches, but, but ultimately he's presenting still man's wisdom and man's tradition rather than a philosophy, a way of living that is according to Christ. And we need a, a biblical worldview. We need a, a biblical understanding of all of human history and uh, of what is taking place right now. That's why we began this series uh, on the church of just the church in God's plan. How does the church fit into the grander picture of human history? What, what is God trying to do in human history and, and how does the church fit into that? And all of these things are the things that we need to, to know and understand, that, that humanity was, was created by God to glorify him, but then uh, humanity has fallen into sin uh, and gone the, the way of our own hearts in, in rebellion against God. And God has planned to redeem humanity 
and to, to rescue and save a people for himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, and he is working through uh, everything that's taking place to accomplish that end, to, to bring glory to himself by rescuing and saving a people for himself. And this is the worldview that we need to have and we need to build as we study Scripture. And we need to build it enough that we are able to distinguish between these two categories of philosophy, right? If Paul is saying, hey, there's these two categories and you need to, to avoid one and build your life on another, we need to be able to distinguish a philosophy according to human tradition with or contrasted with a philosophy according to Christ. And if we don't have that wisdom, that discernment, that criteria, th then we will naturally gravitate and, and fill in what we don't know. And, and so this is something to think about. What, wherever God's Word has not informed your knowledge or your understanding, what you're going to do naturally is you're going to supply your own understanding. Or you're going to, to fill in the blanks with what the world is proclaiming to you. So until, until you've, you've developed that, you're going to fill in the blanks. And that's why it is so important that we develop this worldview, this philosophy of life that is according to Christ. Because again, this one, there is a danger if we don't grasp it. If we don't have a biblical worldview, there is a danger here. And what does Paul say? To see to it that no one takes you captive. See, what we battle against as Christians are thoughts and ideas that, that wage war against us and that are seeking to enslave us. That's what we have to realize. And there are singular thoughts that can wreak havoc upon a life, a marriage, a family, a church, or even a nation. Now, there are many examples that we could, we could turn to for this, but just take this one example, this singular thought, an idea based upon human wisdom that is not according to Christ. And this one singular thought has devastated many. What is that thought? It's this, that human identity comes from our feelings. You take that one singular thought, it just seems harmless, Right? But our society has taken that one simple thought that your personal identity comes from how you feel, who you are attracted to, what gender you feel like at the moment. That one single thought has wreaked so much havoc. But when we have a thorough understanding of Scripture— when Scripture is our rule of life, when it is the philosophy that we live by, we won't be taken captive by the empty and deceptive philosophy of human tradition. We have to understand that. And whenever we depart from God's Word, we are departing from wisdom. I love a verse in, in Jeremiah chapter 8. He says, the wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they have? If we reject God's counsel, what wisdom do we have? Will we go back to the darkness? 
we have to see and believe that the lamp is the light that the word of God is the lamp that we see with. The word of God is called to be the teaching that we submit to. It's called to be the philosophy that we live by. And then fourthly, God's word is the lens we interpret through. You can turn over to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. God's word is the lens that we interpret through. Now, if Scripture is the philosophy that we live by, it also becomes our interpretive lens that, that we, we have to interpret all of life's experiences through. And it's God's Word that helps us to understand the events of our own lives, what we see happening around us, uh, what we experience. And uh, God's Word helps us to even know and understand our own hearts. And, and knowing God's Word builds for us a set of eyeglasses that enables us to see clearly. If I take my glasses off, I won't recognize any of you at this distance. And, and that is what happens if we don't allow God's Word to become the lens that we interpret through. If you, if you look with me at this verse, Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and what does it do? is discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, if you want to rightly understand what's going on in your own heart, where should you turn? To God's Word. If you, if you really want to understand the world around you, if you want to understand other people, if you want to understand yourself, come to God's Word and allow it to interpret things for you. Then you will begin to actually see. And so let me give you an example of this. Let, let's just imagine, hypothetically speaking, a family with conflict, right? Uh, I know you have to use your imaginations for that because you didn't have any conflict on your way to church this morning or anything. Uh, but let's just imagine a family that has conflict. And if you were to go and interview members of the family— they're probably all going to give you different interpretations uh, of the conflict that they are experiencing. The wife might say that the, the conflict is a result of her husband's anger. And the husband might say the conflict was caused by his son's rebellion. And the, the teenage son might say the conflict was caused by his parents' overprotectiveness. They're just trying to control me. See, they all have their own interpretation of things, but how, how do we sort that out? How, how do we know what's truly happening? Well, listen to James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And you do not have because you do not ask. So each one of those family members had their own interpretation of what's taking place, but Scripture says, no, this, these conflicts are, are happening because y'all are sinners. <laughs> That's my paraphrase. Uh, and it's y'all are sinners, and you are being controlled by the desires of your heart. And when you don't get what you want, you fight. 
So scripture would say, hey, the, the wife wants a, a husband who exercises self-control. And is that a bad thing? No, not at all. But what's she going to do if she doesn't get that? She's going to rage. The husband wants an obedient son. And the son wants freedom from his parents' authority. And again, when they don't get what they want, anger, quarreling, and bitterness rule the house rather than the lordship of Christ. See, that's what I mean by Scripture has to be the lens that we interpret life through. Because we are constantly interpreting. We are constantly jumping to conclusions. And I could give you tons of social media examples for that, and you already probably know all of those. But just, just think about that. But Scripture must be the lens that we interpret through. And if each one of those family members begins to interpret life through a biblical lens, what would happen? Well, each one of them would, would take responsibility for their own actions, for their own sin. Sin would be confessed. Forgiveness would be asked for. And forgiveness would be granted. And then they would strive to, to accomplish the deeds appropriate to repentance. And that's vastly different, right? And all because they are interpreting life according to God's word, that they're taking their own experiences and saying, okay, God, what, how should, what should I make of this? What's, what's happening in my own heart right now? Why am I in conflict? Why am I experiencing an anxiety? So, so many other things. We have to use God's Word as our interpretive lens. And then as we do that, even as we saw in that family, the Word of God begins to reverberate, right? Begins to, to reflect and, and bounce off and, and make a tremendous impact in those relationships. But this only happens if we begin to interpret life through the lens of God's Word. So we must believe that God's word is the lamp that we see with, the teaching we submit to, the philosophy we live by, the lens that we interpret with, and then, fifth, that God's word is the standard we measure with. God's word is the standard we measure with. And turn with me over to Acts chapter 17. See, God's word must be the final authority for his church. Now, scripture must be the standard by which all other teaching is to be measured. It, it's the divine yardstick, so to speak. That it's used to measure every man, every ministry, every nation. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is going to, to enter a town called Berea. And, and Paul's going to go into this town, and the people there are going to do what a lot of other people did. Now, the people there are going to receive what Paul said. But what's interesting here uh, is, the, is the focus and the attention is not just the fact that the, what Paul said was received, but why it was received. Look with me at chapter 17, verse 11. It says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And they received the word with all eagerness. Again, that's not a new thing. But they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. 
See, see, they received Paul's word because it measured up to what God had already said in the Old Testament. They said, okay, Paul, new person coming into town. You're, what is it you're saying? And, and where, does, where does the Bible say that? Can you give me a chapter and verse, Paul? Okay, yep, that is what it says there. Okay, so I'll, I'll believe what you are saying. And, and, and that is what we are called to do. We have to have God's word as, again, the divine yardstick, as our standard of measurement by which we evaluate anybody and everybody who's teaching. That's a part of our having a, a philosophy according to Christ where his word becomes the standard and we measure everything up according to it. Like, nope, this falls short. That's not according to Christ. Nope, this, this standard, uh, this meets the standard. This is something that we need to obey and to receive. But another good question, because oftentimes we point to the Bereans and say, hey, good job, Bereans. Here's a question. Where do they get that standard from? Yeah, somebody mile with the Bible over there. Good answer. It's like the, 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 the typical Awana answer. It's a Jesus or the Bible. It's going to be answered. Well, turn with me back over to, to Isaiah chapter 8. And in Isaiah's time, people weren't turning to the Lord. They weren't turning to Yahweh. They were, they were turning elsewhere. And we see a, sta a sad state of affairs in Isaiah chapter 8. If you look with me in verse 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Rather, rather than Israel turning to the Lord, they were turning to spiritual mediums. They're, they're turning to people who can talk to the dead. And Isaiah is saying, hey, shouldn't you just go talk to God? And then look at verse 20. It says, to the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Right? What was the standard of measurement even in the Old Testament? The Word of God. If a prophet or somebody came and, and spoke something that was contrary to God's Word, it was to be immediately rejected. And that person was to be identified as a false prophet. God's Word must be the standard we measure with. That was true in the Old Testament, and it's true in the New Testament, over and over again. We see it here lit, played out in narrative, in Acts. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, Peter says this, If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If you need to, to teach from and, and be rooted to the, the, the oracles of God, speaking of the Word of God, the prophecies uh, that have already been given. If anyone's going to speak, speak on those things. But here's also something to keep in mind. That, that false teachers, they don't necessarily have a stamp on their forehead that announces that they are a false teacher, right? It would be nice if they did. Although usually they have really expensive suits. Uh, uh, and so... How do, how do we discern a, a false teacher? Because false teachers will use God's word. 
Uh, they, they will use God's word to say what they want it to say. And that's where, again, we need to be Bereans. We need to, to use God's word as a standard of measurement, not just to say, oh, well, the, the words are said there, but what, what do they mean? Are they being used in context? Is that the, was that the, the, the desire and the purpose of the original author to the original audience? But listen to this, Second Peter it's a book really addressing false teachers, and Jude is a, as well, because as the, as the church continued on, more and more false teachers crept in. But this is how Peter finishes up his letter, uh, known as 2 Peter. I'm going to read verses 14 through 18. He says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. And as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Right? So Peter says that what Paul wrote is scripture. And then we can all probably give an amen to this. Peter says, man, some of what Paul wrote is difficult to comprehend. But then he says this. So there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Say there are some who come in and twist and mangle Scripture to say something that is not ever intended to say. And then concluding, this is what Peter says, You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing that false teachers will come and mangle and twist the Scriptures, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But... Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So what is it that, that Peter says? He echoes what Paul said, right, in Colossians 2. Don't be carried away. Don't be taken captive. But in, what, what's the solution? Knowing and growing in the word and the grace of God. That's what he is challenging them to. And that's why a thorough knowledge of God's word is going to, to lead us overall in all the things that we're talking about. It will lead us to believe and be convinced that it is the lamp that we see with, that without it, we're in the dark. That it's the teaching that we must submit to, the philosophy we live by, the lens we interpret through, and again, the standard we measure with and then sixth, God's word is the weapon we battle with. God's word is the weapon we battle with. Earlier we looked at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. And, and what does Hebrews 4, verse 12 say about God's word? It, it is a, it's a, it's a sword. Sharper than any two-edged sword. There's also this verse that you're maybe not as familiar with in, in Jeremiah Jeremiah 23, verse 29. God says, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? God's word is a, is a sword that, that pierces, a fire that devours, a, a rock that, that shatters. As we read earlier in Ephesians 6, this is 
the weapon of our warfare. This is what we use to do battle with all of the thoughts and ideas that come our way from the world around us. This is what we use to, to battle against the spiritual forces and against the human ideas that raise himself up against God. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, Paul says this, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So rather than us being taken captive by thoughts and ideas, we take every thought captive to Christ. We say, hey, come here, thought. Let me take you to Jesus and see what he has to say. Jesus, should I believe this thought? Should I reject this thought? That's the idea. We, we are to use the word of God as a weapon to destroy arguments and opinions, everything that is raised up against the knowledge of God. But what, what does that look like? How do we do that? Well, just think back to, to Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. He's out in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. And Satan turns to his, his favorite game plan. And his favorite game plan is really his only game plan. What Satan does is he just gets you to question. He, he tempts you. He, he throws out ideas that are contrary to God and his word. And each time Christ was tempted, what weapon did he pick up? What did he turn to to, to, to go into battle with? He picked up God's word. And with each temptation, he responded, It is written. It is written. It is written. Scripture is the weapon that Christ wielded against Satan. And it's the weapon that we need to wield as well. And if we don't have the word of God in our hearts and in our minds, we walk into battle without any weapon. We're swordless, we're hammerless. hammerless. Well, we have nothing, we have, we have no armor. We walk in and then we, we wonder why we lose. We wonder why we're, we're pierced with arrows. Well, because we don't have the shield of faith. Well, we don't have what we need in God's word. And then even if we have Scripture as a weapon, we must also actually use it in battle. It's not enough to say, hey, I have this sword just lying right there. Should I pick it up? No, I'll, I'll just leave it. We'll see what happens. Uh, that's not a wise thing. We, we have to have the weapon and we have to use the weapon. We have to practice with the weapon so that we can put on the whole armor of God. Again, to, to quote... Charles Spurgeon, speaking of God's word, he says, This weapon is good at all points, good for defense and good for attack, to guard our whole person or to strike through the joints and marrow of the foe. Like the seraph's sword at Eden's gate, it turns every way. You cannot be in a condition that the word of God has not provided. The Word of God has so many faces and eyes as providence itself. You will find it unfailing in all periods of your life, in all circumstances, in all companies, in all trials, and under all difficulties. Were it fallible, it would be useless in emergencies, but its unerring truth renders it precious 
beyond all price to the soldiers of the cross. Again, that is what we must be convinced of, that we dare not go into battle against the thoughts and ideas and spiritual forces in the world around us without being equipped with God's Word. God's Word is the weapon we must pick up to do battle with, but it is also an instrument in God's hands, which is our seventh illustration. God's Word is the instrument He sanctifies with. Turn with me over to John 17. As Jesus was praying for His disciples, just moments before His arrest, He spoke these words. This was His prayer for His disciples. He asked God the Father, John 17, 17, he says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as Jesus prays this, he's praying for their sanctification, and he acknowledges that it is God's word that God will use to sanctify the disciples. It's God's word that is the means God uses to make his people holy. And God's goal is to make each and every one of us, every single person who has believed and looked upon Jesus in faith, his goal in us is to make us look like Jesus. And what is he going to use to make that happen? He's going to use his word and his spirit. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul speaks uh, about the husband and wife relationship. Uh, he, he's commanding husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And, he, and he's explaining that this marriage relationship is really a picture of what Jesus has done with his bride, the church. And Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and 26. He says, Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's a sacrificial love that we are called to exemplify and model, husbands. But then he also says this, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So how does Christ cleanse his church? With his word. Now, Every night, my, my boys, who are one and, and three, they look forward to bath time. Well, maybe not every night, but they enjoy bath once they're in there. Once I can get them in, they have a good time. Uh, and, and, I, and I wash those boys, making sure that they're clean. And I use soap and I use water. But when God washes his children, he uses his word and his spirit. And we have to understand that we are not going to be cleansed we're not going to be washed. We're not going to be changed apart from the Word or apart from the Spirit. We must see our need for God's Word. We won't be cleansed without it. And we have to see our need. And if we understand our need for God's Word, we will then begin to have a desire for the Word. 1 Peter 2, 2 was going to be another point, the milk that grows us, but uh, uh, I ran out of time uh, already. So First Peter 2, 2 says this, like newborn infants long 
for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. That's what, what Peter says we should desire. The word of God in the same way that a, that a newborn longs for, for milk. That should be our desire. We must see our need for God's word, but we must also see the sufficiency of God's word. Believing that his word is enough for our sanctification. I love that quote that I just read from Charles Spurgeon. All right, that we must see that God's word is good and helpful in any and every circumstance in life. If it wasn't good in any and every circumstance, you say, yeah, what good is it? If I, if I can't pick up God's word in an emergency and have it help me no matter what is taking place, why do, why do I need to believe any of this? But, but God's word is sufficient. And we must believe that. And you can figure that out really quickly whether or not you really do believe it. And just, just thinking and answering this question. Is God's word one tool out of many in the toolbox that God will use to sanctify us? Or is God's word the toolbox that contains everything else? Is God's word just one option to fix your problems? Or is it the only option with all of the tools in it? And is it one tool or is it the whole toolbox? We must believe that God's word is sufficient and that he will sanctify us according to his word. That his word, as it says in Isaiah 55, that his word will not return void to him. That what God intends to happen through his word will happen. And we must be convinced that, that we will not experience any spiritual growth in our lives apart from the truth of God's word. That's what we must be convinced of. And leading to, to our eighth and our, our final illustration. And all of the, the previous illustrations lead us to this final conclusion, right? If, if God's word is the lamp that we see with, it's the teaching we submit to, the philosophy we live by, the lens we interpret through, the standard we measure with, the weapon we battle with, the instrument that God sanctifies with, then, therefore, God's word must be the foundation we build upon. It must be this way. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, as, as Jesus finished up the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Christ, Christ is, is calling us to build upon the foundation that he has supplied for us. He has taught and instructed us and said, build here. It's like a land surveyor. Say, this is the best place to build. And when we say, oh, I'm going to build somewhere else, it's, it's we are rejecting as if Jesus doesn't know the best place to build. We must build on what he has commanded us to build upon. And, and the foundation of a building establishes the stability of the entire structure. 
Right? If, if the foundation is, is wrong, then the, then the whole structure is eventually going to, to collapse or need to be torn down. Uh, and, and over the course of, of church history, really you can just look at the course of the 20th century. There are many churches and denominations that have sought to, to build a foundation on something other than God's Word. Or, or even a partial foundation on God's Word. Again, they, they treated it like a buffet line. Well, I like these portions and these commands, but I, I mean, dis- kind of disagree with these, so I'll reject those. So I'll do a, a partial foundation. Well, eventually the, the whole structure still crumbles, and there are many churches and denominations that are spiritually dying and physically crumbling. And a church will cease to be a church when it builds upon anything other than God's Word. So as a church, and as individuals, we must build only and always upon the Word of God. There's a a portion of uh, that famous Greek epic, The Odyssey, in which uh, Ulysses and his men are, are trying to, to sail past uh, these creatures known as sirens. Uh, and, and the sirens are uh, these, these creatures that use music and, and their voices to, to lure sailors to, to coming close and then uh, being shipwrecked upon the, the, the rocky coast of their island. And, and Ulysses and his men, to, to make it past this trial, Ulysses stopped up all of the, the ears of his men. So he says, hey, you, you, you men shouldn't listen to this. You, you, you stop up your ears. You don't heed anything that they, you don't heed their music. And then the, the men fastened and, and tied up Ulysses to the mast of the ship. And he instructed them, no matter what he says, no matter what he does, that they had to to keep him there because the sound of the sirens would would tempt him to just throw himself into the sea and try and make it to shore to to the sirens, which would have been his destruction. And and that's the the tactic that we have to take, beloved. And we have to, to anchor ourselves, to tie ourselves to the Word of God. And we have to, to hold one another fast to the Word of God and say, yeah, we're not going anywhere. We're all staying here un, or inseparable from God's Word so that we don't plunge into dangerous seas, so that we might not be led astray by the temptations of the world. And, and my, my heart and my my prayer is that, again, we as individuals and we as a church see God's Word for all that it is. That we might be convinced of every single one of these truths and then we might begin to, to live accordingly. And, and if we believe and embrace all of these truths, then the Word of God truly will begin to, to reverberate and make noise within our church, not just on Sunday mornings, but, but, but at, on, a, on a life-on-life basis throughout the week as we come together. And we, we gather together on Sunday mornings and then in the middle of the week, and then we scatter out into our neighborhoods. And, and if the Word of God is reverberating among us while we're here together, that sound of the gospel will continue beyond us. Again, it will be heard in our community, in our neighborhoods. 
And that is our hope. That is our desire for the word to sound forth by our own proclamation and by the way that we are living. That is our prayer, that the word would reverberate. But we must wholeheartedly believe and embrace these truths. We must believe what God's word says about itself. It is altogether life-changing. I pray that we would be convinced of that and be passionate about telling others about that same truth. Amen. Let's pray.